The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and here we are on a beautiful autumn day on the cusp of All Hallows' Eve, which, over time, has strayed far from its roots of pagan worship of the earth and spirits, keeping evil at bay. We have modern parallels we have also, where we have also strayed from original meanings, where we worship the trappings of excess and commercialization and the power of the advertising dollar, which we have brought, brought into lock, stock, and smoking barrels, buying into the bill of goods we are being told we need to make it all better, ignoring, perhaps, the warnings and reminders heralded by those things more earthly and spiritual. We do well to remember All Hallows' Eve, or as it was originally called by our colonial forefathers, Guy Fawkes Day, where we burned in effigy the betrayers, or in before institutionalized religion, we celebrated the days of spirits and nature to bless our lives and provide us peace as we headed toward the giving of thanks for a good harvest. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, formed in 1973. That act was a landmark law that supposedly solidified and marked our nation's and the world's commitment to conserve and protect our wildlife. But something has gone astray. In the past 40 years, we have confirmed the extinction of at least 11 known species. Let's start with a list. The golden toad disappeared forever in 1989. In 1996, the Zanzibar leopard from the Tanzania archipelago lost through hunting due to the locals' view that the animal was evil and used by witches, thus must be exterminated, although there have still been some occasional and undocumented unconfirmed sightings. Then there's the Pauli, or black-faced honeycreeper, gone in 2004, a native species of bird on Maui, which had only been discovered in the 1970s. Loss of habitat, disease, predators, and a decline in its food source, native tree snails, is cited for its demise. Then there is the Adarian large white butterfly, last seen in Portugal's Madeira Islands in 2007. It's lost due to increased construction and pollution from agricultural fertilizers. 
Then there's the Tacopa pupfish, gone in 1982. A native of the hot springs of the Mojave Desert has the distinction of being the first animal declared extinct under the provisions of the Endangered Species Act. It's lost due to human development and encroachment into its habitat. These are just the small critters, the ones we barely glance at or, or perhaps never even knew about. Next, we have the larger mammals. The Pyrenean ibex, gone in 2000. It's lost due to overhunting with no measures taken by the Spanish government, acting with in time despite conservation science warnings of its imminent demise. The Pyrenean ibex also has the distinction of being one of the few endangered species that was successfully cloned in 2009 from skin samples taken from the last living animal. However, it died shortly after birth from lung complications. Then we have the West African black rhinoceros. It was declared extinct in 2006 after no sightings of the animal were seen in its last remaining habitat in Cameroon. It was one of the four subspecies of rhino and the cause of its loss was hunting for its horn for purported medicinal uses and Yemeni dagger handles. Next, we have the Javan tiger, which in the 1800s were so plentiful and common, they were considered pests by island natives. As the island was developed commercially by the 1950s, only 20 remained. And despite conservation efforts in the 40s and 50s, the last Javan tiger was gone forever in 1979 because of loss of habitat resulting from inadequate land use and planning for its survival. The Spix macaw, or the little blue macaw, known for its beautiful blue feathers, went extinct in the wild in 2004 from illegal trapping for commercial trade and habitat destruction. Our only saving grace here is that a few remain today in captivity. The Round Island Burrowing Boa Constrictor, native to a number of small islands around Mauritius, its population had dwindled by the 1940s, with the introduction of non-native species such as rabbits and goats to the island, destroyed the vegetation in which the boa lived. And the last in this list of extinctions is the Dutch Alcan Blue Butterfly, last seen in 1979 in its native homeland of the grasslands in Netherlands, gone forever due to increased farming and land development causing the loss of its food source. You can see the trend here, can't you? You may be asking me, has anyone missed these species since their extinctions? Has the cascade of consequences of their losses wrought havoc for us? No, at least not yet, because we simply do not know enough, and that's a very sad epitaph indeed. Many of us never even knew these beauties of nature existed at all, except perhaps those of us who lived near them, studied them, hunted them, or had an opportunity to see them in the wild. But make no mistake about it, we are head-on on the front lines of a conservation to protect and conserve the remaining species we do have. Our attitudes and the decisions we are making about what we humans, as a society and a species, need to survive has gone so far astray from our humble origins, it has become a narcissistic race into oblivion where nothing matters no other than, other than the fulfillment of our needs and our greed. We have forgotten that we need Earth to survive, and that Earth being an organic wonder of complex functioning systems and beauty, its magnitude beyond our comprehension and ability to unravel the complex relationships between all living things, its
invites architects, designers, and builders to keep its hearts, lungs, arteries, land masses, and oceans alive and well, and able to provide for all its inhabitants in abundance, including us. Last week, I talked some about how did we get here and where we are today to this place that we think it is okay to disrespect each other, our land, our rivers, and our earth, that someone else is taking care of these things, that we needn't pay attention because that's not our job as we run through our days at the office on the train in rush hour while we complain that our cities stink, our water is unsafe to drink, and that we have air quality alerts along the same lines of terrorist threats. Have we reached DEFCON 4 yet? Are these routines, devastation, and arguments of continued assault upon each other and our world the new default status? Simply because we are not consciously choosing to make better alternatives because it will require some personal sacrifice or our full attention in being present and participating, not just some of us, but all of us, especially those of us in the so-called developed and industrialized worlds. It is our development and excuse me, industrialization that the undeveloped and emergent worlds are following by example and ultimately paying the price for and in the loss of their ability to take their place on the global stage and markets. Those who cannot pollute on scales of magnitudes are the ones paying the price today for our follies and our toys. Climate change, habitat degradation, and species loss. It's everyone's problem, but only some of us are in a position, economically, educationally, financially, and technologically, able to do something about it. And that is where the conservation front lines clash. It used to be called the haves and have-nots. Now, it's better stated as the haves and the want-mores. Have you seen the film Captain Phillips yet? As I mentioned last week, I work in northern Kenya. It's not only just a short distance from Ethiopia, it is the new battleground and frontline of the Somali diaspora. The refugees that depart from a country in chaos where its people have few options and choices and who have lived with very little in the way of Western comforts, but also under the heavy brow of civil war and lawlessness, without government, without protection, where just about anything goes. Where once, where, what once were fishermen who now can't make a subsistence living anymore because the oceans have been overfished by big international conglomerates and poor tactics. Thus, a portion of the population finds they have no other choice than to turn to violence, to piracy. Not to give the film away, but there is one line in there which to me sums up our predicament quite well. The pirate says, and I quote, I had six million dollars from his last venture. And Captain Phillips says, then what are you doing here? The Somali turns away, caught in his own web of truth and lies. The captain says, I gave you 30000 in cash and a lifeboat, but that wasn't enough. And that right there is the comment for our times. When is enough enough? What is it that drives our dying need, continuous search, and craving for more and more of less and less when we already have enough? When more and more becomes a violent taking from others and the atrocities we see across the globe being carried out by one group of humans onto another, where the smallest difference now leads to civil disobedience and the breakdown of society and culture and law, 
where survival becomes so short-term that a plan is only about hours, not years or decades or centuries. It's been said that we may not know how World War III will be fought, but we know that World War IV will be sticks and stones. I propose that World War III is already underway. It's just not the war we thought it would be. This time, it's war against Earth and all other living, no, living non-human beings. There are clear and present danger signs that we, humanity, are not as committed to protecting our imperiled planet as we may pretend to be. Otherwise, why are we looking at the impending extinctions of some of our world's great and charismatic megafauna? Lions, polar bears, elephants, rhino. What are the cascade of consequences when these species become extinct, which is a very real possibility in our lifetimes? In fact, in some cases, it may just be a matter of three or five years. Put that into relationship to your newborn child. Does, Mac, does that make the seriousness a bit more clear? We don't have the luxury of time on our side as we did when the clarion call went out in the 1960s with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and E.O. Wilson's The Sinking Ark. And on that little note, we're going to take a break and I'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're 
listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And today we're talking about the front lines of conservation. Here we are on the 40th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, and we see the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services facing an ever-increasing list of species that need protection from us. More species than our governments will uh, will have the f- funding for to create the projects or efforts needed to conserve them. And even more dangerous that the USFW is retreating from past and present efforts and policies to fully recover species that we have the ability to do something about. Wolves are a perfect example. Instead, we take the expedient actions that work for the short term, ensuring the loss of species or a lack or the lack of an investment plan in their future, putting aside and wasting the billions of dollars we have already invested to throw up our hands and say, never mind, we tried. Why then is there enough money to put out a mega million dollar lottery ticket to continue to build fossil fuel autos by the millions, but there isn't enough to protect our living earth? Why, when there is still plenty of suitable habitat and a willingness by many to protect and ensure the future for these imperiled species, why do we turn away? Why do we think it's not about us? Or excuse me, why do we think it's just about us? I simply do not understand this mindset. On the 40th anniversary of the ESA, we need to recommit ourselves to the values and the ethics that enacted this law to begin with, to recreate the sense of stewardship rather than overtly and with full blind acceptance, entertain and overindulge ourselves silly and to the death, to listen to our ancestors' voices, that it is time to dispel the malignant spirits and make way for thanksgiving. We have so much going for us and so many successes to be proud of. We have fought long and hard to win, to sway governments and general populations of the developed and developing nations. The time is here for us to gather and show our strengths, willingness, and ability to shift mindsets and paradigms. It's proven that it can be done because it is a shift in thinking that got us here. So there is a shift where we can turn it around. Here are some examples of ground we have gained through hard-fought legal battles by organizations such as the Defenders of Wildlife or the National Resource Defense Council and the big international conservation organizations we all know of and many of us support financially, WWF, AWF, and the Nature Conservancy. The animal welfare battles being won by Humane Society and PETA to change the way we treat our food animals and those we use for clothing, industry, and that which we keep for captive for our research, education, enlightenment, and entertainment. Accomplishments made through, made through because of public awareness and public outcry to save species from the brink. We can do this. 
After near extirpation in the early 1900s, American bison have finally been granted rights to some of their old stomping grounds on the Great Plains, when this past June, the Montana Supreme Court reversed a lower court decision that prevented the bison's return. Native American tribes at at Fort Belknap Reservation in Montana had been waiting to restore wild bison to their lands ever since 61 of the animals were returned to their native grounds at Fort Peck Reservation in 2012. Bison opponents, those who attribute brucellosis, deathly to cattle, to the movements of bison in and out of Yellowstone and lobby both through the courts and their wallets and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to kill bison wandering out of the park and to prevent any further or future transfers of bison to native lands. As a result of this ruling being overturned, 34 bison set foot on Fort Belknap this past August. These bison are descendants of the last 25 wild bison from the late 1800s, when hunters and the westward expansion for gold and glory hunted them by the thousands to near extinction. Then we have wolves. Hunted to extinction in the lower 48, wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone in 1974 and have been under the gun ever since. We, our federal government and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, spent millions of dollars on the wolf reintroduction project, while we currently fund billions to the federal wildlife services to kill them on site at the behest of vested livestock industry. It doesn't seem to matter that the wolf's return has also heralded the return of Yellowstone's failing landscape, shown through research and data over the past 30 years by Robert Beshta and William Ripple, both studying five different U.S. national parks and why their landscapes were dying off. Beshta, through the study of aspen trees and their lack of new growth from overbrowsing by elk and deer, and Ripple through studying riparian erosion. Both of these men came to the conclusion that the loss of apex predators in the landscapes were the culprit. That apex predator is the wolf. Since its reintroduction into Yellowstone, the elk have regained what is called an ecology of fear. They know they are prey and will be predated upon, so they move, browse, and give birth accordingly. That is, where they won't get eaten or seen by wolves. As a result, aspen tree growth has been renewed, as seen by the upsurge in age groups of new trees, seedlings, small, medium, large, and old growth, along with the restoration of stream stream banks and soil stability through the root systems of the trees and grasses that can grow without being constantly over-browsed. The overpopulated herds of elk and deer have thinned down and are healthy, much to the hunters' and hunting lobby's dismay. Living in a healthy ecosystem that promotes growth and diversity, and along with that, a healthy economy via tourism, in the other four national parks that were comparatively studied through the same time frame of the past 30 years by Ripple and Beshta, only Yellowstone has regained its former glory, able to support viable and varied populations of predator-to-prey relationships, wolves, grizzlies, foxes, coyotes, and mountain lions, and with enough space and elk and deer left for us. What other good news is a result of the wolf's return to Yellowstone? Berries! Fruits of the gods and nature, the mainstay sustenance for birds, ungulates, and bears, no longer overgrazed by insatiable levels of 
insatiable appetites and unsustainable levels of deer and elk, the berries have returned to Yellowstone with a profound effect on the landscape and ecosystem. As Robert Beshta and William Ripple from Oregon State University and Washington State University and their teams of researchers and 30 years of data have shown that studies such as theirs point to the need for an ecologically effective number of wolves as we learn more and more about their cascading effects along the lifeline, restoring pyramids of natural ecosystems health. Alongside studies such as Bestas and Ripples and many others, much work has been accomplished between ranchers and conservationists, animal welfare, group, animal welfare groups and industry to enable our ability and livelihoods to live with competitive predators through enacting a wide variety of methods. The only real barrier to the success of any of these methods is our willingness to live with the competition over resources these predators present and the Endangered Species Act as protection for the voiceless. To make it into the coming generations, we must be willing to balance our needs with the needs of wildlife and the needs of the planet. We are inextricably linked through our resources, that which we call Earth. Moving forward, we have to be smart from the start when we look at both fossil fuels and renewable energy and its environmental costs. And we have to think and plan for the long term that life beyond our limited lifespan is as important to our lives today as it will be for our children's yet unborn children. We need to be thinking along the lines of upgrading current systems and utilities infrastructures where possible or build new structures along the lines of the current ones that, force, that do not force wildlife to adapt to entirely new disturbances when that is not necessary. Wherever we build roads, we fracture landscapes, which fractures wildlife's ability to survive not only nature's inherent challenges and risks, but those also created solely by us and our ever-expanding footprint, both physically and in globally rising population numbers and our ever-constant quest for the raw materials needed for ever-increasing and insatiable appetites as the Western model of convenience takes root and firmly takes a foothold on the ladder of rising middle-class economies. Now let's take a little trip uh, to another issue that is really thought of, but is all about living lightly and being aware of your own footprint pharmaceuticals, and our ecosystems. Those often life-saving medications and cures that wash down our drain pipes, ending up on our waterways, that can and have and will continue to change core functions of life on Earth. Researcher Thomas Broden from Umea University in Sweden, studying the effects of some chemicals on fish in the lab, has discovered that only trace amounts of oxazepam, a con commonly prescribed anti-anxiety medication, made European perch bolder in their search for food, thus spending less time under cover and protection and more time out in the open. This is a behavioral change that Bowden could create in the lab, but it has major implications for the wild, which could ultimately affect evolutionary trajectories of a multitude of species. 
the waterways of the U.S. and other industrialized nations are awash with the miracle of modern living, and we are passing these miracles on to those in the emerging nations through our perceived goodwill, bringing aid and medicine to the underprivileged and disadvantaged, the poor and the starving. Dissolved quantities of pharmaceuticals, including prescription over-the-counter veterinary and illegal drugs, along with detergents, cosmetics, fragrances, and sunscreen, can be found anywhere human activity flows into rivers, lakes, streams, or coastal waters. Designed to react biologically and to resist degradation, these emerging contaminants are of growing concern to ecologists and thereby our ecology. While ubiquitous, these pollutants usually exist in very low concentrations outside of those waterways downstream from a sewage outflow or agricultural runoff, where we see the highest levels of concentrations recorded in parts per trillion, an equivalent of one drop in 20 Olympic swimming pools. This exceptionally diluted concentration has to, has documented ill effects, has little to nil documented ill effects on humans, but Aquatic animals spend their entire lives swimming in these contaminants. Chronic exposure can damage cells, which can result in cancers, other mutations, and loss of fertility in fish, invertebrates, and microscopic life, which is the base of all life and necessary for all of us to survive. And on that note, we're going to take another break, and I'll be right back to discuss the outcomes of our pharmaceuticals on our Earth. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E dot O R G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. The point of my talks on this show, Our Wild World, is to help bring to light connections and linkages that we may not typically think about during our days. But somebody has to do this to help us uh, bring to light and bring to our attention what our modern living is doing to our planet. Before the break, I left off with pharmaceuticals, those life-saving miracle drugs and their effect on our planet. There are hundreds of compounds that wash down our drains every day. Portions of the medications we take pass through our bodies intact and end up in our sewage. Here's a pointer for you. Do not wash your unused pills and potions down the sink or toilet. But either way, what we don't absorb in the body will end up in the drain pipe anyway. The upside to this scary thought is that before entering the ecosystem, most contaminants must pass through sewage treatment systems. The downside is that these systems vary substantially in efficiency, from the urban treatment plants to the rural septic system. But very few of these systems have been designed to eliminate these new pollutants. How does that make you feel? Do we have the technology to remove these contaminants from our water? Yes! Think of that pure or Brita water filter you have on your sink or the reverse osmosis membranes that filter out almost all pollutants. But each of these techniques have their limitations and the byproducts are typically highly concentrated wastewater. Good news is that exposure to ultraviolet light ozone and free radicals alone or in combination can degrade all but the most resilient contaminants but these techniques and systems are also expensive to implement on a large scale or in remote areas where the materials are not available but worse than this is our business model water and land managers have no incentive to try emerging contaminants are currently unregulated The Environmental Protection Agency is certainly interested in researching this problem, but too many unknowns currently exist to draw and sort uh, and create a binding regulation. And thousands of consumer chemicals are being developed every day, and the way they interact and bond in natural ecosystems is complex. And no one treatment can degrade every compound. And where will the money for this research come from? As this type of funding is harder and harder to come by, just as is funding for wildlife conservation, animal welfare, and nutritional studies. We are becoming overwhelmed now with the unintended consequences of our improved standards of living. One thing we can be certain of is the ramifications of these pollutants on our waterways and deep ecology systems will likely only increase unless we each begin to consider the ramifications of our actions and our lifestyles. 
that alone is enough to make you reach for the anti-anxiety pills, isn't it? So you ask, what can you do? One, don't flush unused medicines down the toilet. Mix it with kitty litter or coffee grounds to discard in your waste, or look for drug take-back programs in your area. Avoid antibacterial soaps. They help breed the superbugs, and the portions that wash, wash down the drain wreak havoc on aquatic systems, or if you live in rural areas on a septic system that washes into your landscape or overflows into a waterway, river, stream, or lake, then take precautions and dispose of these pharmaceuticals properly, or don't use them at all. There are alternatives in just about every natural or whole food store. Use eco-friendly cleaners and products that do not degrade or disrupt cellular activity. That's why we have invested so much time, energy, money into these products, research and development, and policies for industries and going green. Use them. Vote with your consumer dollar that you are aware of these issues and choose to do your bit to reduce or at least not add to the problem. The first step to a solution is awareness and ownership of the problem. We may not be able to solve this on the large scale just yet, but we can be personally responsible for our own actions and spread the word through our social networks, friends, and colleagues. So... Whether it is wolves and lions, elephants and rhino, polar bears and grizzlies, our waterways, oceans, grasslands, ranchlands, mountains and plains, cities or far from the hustle and bustle, Africa, Europe or the U.S., we are sitting on the razor's edge of the future. The choices we make in our daily lives, the products we use, the foods we eat, the decisions and choices we make every day, sometimes from moment to moment, will affect the front lines of conservation of not only our own species' survival, but that of all living things. It is no longer just about us. For we know that our survival is dependent and linked to the survival of our habitats, ecosystems, and wildlife. What we can ask and deserve to expect from each other is to respect life. And rather than ignore and let things slide, do our bit anywhere, everywhere, and every time to help it along. What we can do is ensure that our political representatives are working for our agenda and our future. By paying attention to what is going on in our government, like what is currently up before our House and Senate, the stability of our longtime ally in conservation and protections in the, in the United States Farm Bill. Many of our past farm bills have turned farmers into wildlife conservationists by providing financial incentives to keep marginal lands unplowed and unplanted, protecting habitats for wildlife in the process. These conservation incentive programs comprise a fraction of the bill's total cost, but they frequently come up on the chopping block. The latest version of this bill, passed by the Senate in July, is under attack by the House of Representatives, removing conservation subsidies while doling out almost a trillion dollars over five years to a diverse array of nutrition and agricultural programs, including lavish assistance and crop insurance contributions that benefit the wealthiest farmers and industries taxpayers. That's you, and industries, I'm sorry, taxpayers, that's you and I, would end up paying the lion's share of crop insurance premiums, which would encourage risky farming ventures in otherwise ideal wildlife habitat. 
This House version of the bill also includes many riders that would gut basic environmental protections and override long-established protections for clean water, healthy ecosystems, and imperiled wildlife. One rider attached to this version of the bill would seriously undermine the Clean Water Act by allowing direct application of pesticides to waterways without requiring federal permits. Do you recall my mention just a little bit ago about the pharmaceuticals and new contaminants in our waterways and sewage and their effects on aquatic and marine life? Additional riders in the House bill would further override and remove protections under the Farm Bill passed by the Senate. It would remove pesticides from restrictions under the Endangered Species Act and expand the powers of the Forest Service to sidestep safeguards provided by federal environmental laws. And another would exempt the Forest Service from monitoring waterways and runoffs generated by forestry-related activities, such as clear-cutting and road building. What this means is, if roads built to access and log remote areas and pollute our waterways, neither the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency or the states themselves would be able to challenge these activities or their consequences in courts of law. The House of Representatives' revised version of the Senate bill would, if passed, be the most wide-ranging assault on the environment by this Congress, in essence declaring an all-out war on our environment and wildlife. Well, how much does this say when just weeks ago our Congress couldn't agree on keeping our federal government functioning? In contrast to the House's conservation crippling bill, the Senate's version includes smaller cuts and subsidies that retain requirements for farmers to adopt environmentally sound practices, many of which have been in place and working well on thousands of farms for the past two or three decades. What we can do is pay attention. Give our time and thought to these big issues that provide for our protections and the security of our world for the long term. Or, as I've said before, reevaluate our benchmark of how we define health and wealth. We can each be individually responsible and create awareness in our communities and amongst our neighbors of the ramifications of our personal and political actions. We can apply public pressure and our consumer dollars to shift our public attitudes, make it socially unacceptable to continue destructive practices. Bottom-up pressure affects industry and politics. We can make it our agenda that we will no longer accept policies and practices that ultimately harm us. After all, this is our wild world. If we don't care, who will? And on that little note, we're heading into another little break, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're talking about... um Moving into All Hallows Eve and Harvest Time and giving thanks and the effects of our lifestyle on our planet. Let's stand still at a couple of words. Sustainable is derived from the Latin word sustenere, meaning sus, which means up, and tenere, which means to hold. Thus, Sustain, sustainable means to uphold. In this context, it means renewing resources at a rate equal to or greater than the rate at which they are consumed or living within the resources of the planet without damaging the environment now or in the future. In layman's terms, it means to use something in such a way that it will never disappear. Renewable in this context means that it can procreate or reproduce, continuously replacing itself. Safe population in this context refers to a group of animals or people that's numbers are healthy for the environment they are occupying and that their numbers are not decreasing. Another word that is often misused is preservation. Many people will tell that conservation is to preserve for the future. This is not correct. In recent times, preservation has become a bit of a loutish word to use since its principles are enforced when conservation principles should be applied. Many people have given preservation a bad name, but it does not deserve it. In fact, it plays an important role in wildlife management. Let's look at the definition of preservation. Preservation is the protection of renewable natural resources of unsafe animal populations so that they can become safe. Preservation plays an important role in managing unsafe animal populations, and we could apply that to unsafe human populations. From the respective definitions, it can be seen that the principles of preservation and conservation differ. Conservation will attempt to use the renewable resource, while preservation will attempt to protect the renewable resource. Both have their place. Let's look at a scenario. 
a specific species is endangered. There are very few populations of the species left in the wild or in private ownership, and the respective populations are all in decline. No doubt the species is facing extinction. An effort is now made to start an intensive breeding program. Individuals of the specific species will be acquired in an attempt to breed offspring. The species will be well looked after, their health monitored on a continuous basis, and it will be safe to say there will be tight scrutiny. This may continue for a period of time, three to ten years, depending on the species, maybe for a couple of generations. If the specific species has no natural habitat, it can be released in. The conditions provided must encourage breeding and every manipulative technique must be used to produce the maximum numbers of young. As time goes by, the numbers increase and the respective populations become safe. When the large numbers of young have been reared, those that are surplus to the future breeding program must be released back into the wild in a natural habitat that is known to be optimal for the species. The manner of their release and the rehabilitation program that follows must maximize their chances of successfully returning to the wild. At times, it may be necessary to keep the specific species captive because no natural habitat exists in which it can be released. Thus, their natural habitats first have to be restored. Examples of such species are the Mauritian uh, kestrel and the Mauritian fruit bat. We could also say rhinos, elephants, lions, and polar bears, and pandas. These species' natural habitats and environments have almost been totally destroyed as a result of past and current human activities, increased human population, uh, habitat degradation, and encroachment and, and agriculture. In these scenarios, preservation management principles can be applied to the species after they were captured until enough offspring was bred. Conservation management principles are then applied. This involves the capture of animals, their transportation, and their release into some new habitat where vacant home ranges and vacant territories exist. This exercise is often carried out by the state wildlife authorities purely for the purpose of expanding the range of a species, struggling populations of these species elsewhere. In such cases, the costs involved are carried entirely by the people, the state, or the government. So this is a moment to reflect on where we are. As the title of this show suggests, we are at the conservation front lines. We are at that point in time and history where we have strayed far from our original purpose, far from our small numbers of humans, and into a place where humans are the rulers and the decision makers of everything else around us. We are the deciding factor of what will live and what will die. We are the deciding factor of what we will choose to conserve and what we will choose to preserve. We can make this decision. And on this note, I would like to give a little heads up of our guest next week, uh, Damian Mander of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Damian Mander is an Australian ex-Army forces, uh, special forces, who came to the realization after seeing an elephant with its face hacked off for its ivory that uh, he could perhaps put his skills and talents to that 
front line of conservation in a way that we have not yet done so. We have gone about wildlife conservation and protection and anti-poaching from the small ranger perspective. That small foot patrols out in uh, large swaths of land were enough to protect imperiled species. This is no longer working, especially today for the rhino and the elephant. So what is happening on the conservation front lines of today is the possibility of militarizing our anti-poaching techniques. After all, what the war that we're fighting and the battle lines that are being drawn by the international syndicates where wildlife tra- trafficking is the fifth most lucrative economic uh, business to be had today, that perhaps we need to fight fire with fire. Since the syndicates are using automatic weapons and militarized uh, methods to kill our wildlife for wildlife trafficking across our globe, then perhaps we meet, need to meet that head-on with a militarized anti-poaching force. So uh, you can look up Damien Mander on uh, Google, give him a Google search, and I suggest you watch his TEDx talk. This is a very compelling, uh, intense young man who has dedicated his life toward the protection of wildlife and uh, anti-poaching. So I hope you will join us next week with Damien Mander and the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. It's a show you're not going to want to miss. I met him at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival where he gave a panel presentation. And uh, after the World Bank and UNEP speakers did their panel, Damien was in the uh, audience, and he had previously stated that it's going to cost 76 billion dollars for us to combat what he calls the worldwide war on wildlife. This is where we are, folks. So he asked World Bank and UNEP, where is this money going to come from? As they bandied about numbers in the hundreds of millions and hundreds of billions in terms of loans for emerging nations and uh, to bring uh, living standards up to an acceptable level. Uh, comparable to that of the West and the developed nations. So he asked point blank, where will you, where and when will you give us the $76 billion? I was amazed at the sidestepping and fancy footwork and fancy wordsmithing to sidestep any direct answer to this question. World Bank uh, representative said, you know, I don't think I can answer that question, so I'll hand it over to my colleague at UNEP. UNEP is the United Nations Environmental Protection Program, which is the uh, father or parent organization, so to speak, of CITES, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, which is also helps fund traffic, the, which is the monitoring of endang- the trade in endangered species, and MIKE, which is the monitoring of international monitoring of the killing of elephants. So the UNEP woman went on, once again, sidestepping this question beautifully. I never heard an answer. And she ended her talk with, stop whining. So if that's what we're going to get from the people who are in a position to make a difference for our wildlife, conservation, 
preservation and emerging worlds, development, industry, and equalizing the playing field across the planet. And if we're told to stop whining, what does that say for our future? So on that note, um, I hope you'll take some time to ponder what we talked about today and ponder and act upon what you can do in your everyday life to make a difference. I don't care whether it's giving money to an or well, I do care actually, whether it's giving money to your favorite uh, organization, whether it be uh, domestic wildlife, uh, stopping abuse of farm animals, industry animals, or uh, shelter animals, no-kill shelters, or wh- whether it's wildlife conservation, or building clinics and schools which, to provide education where it is most needed. What we need to do is do something. So on that note, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World, and I hope you have a good day and that you use that big brain of yours to do a little thinking. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 